Good morning, saints of God. Oh, that was real weak. Has God been good to us this week? Good morning, saints of God. That's much better. I'd like to, first of all, thank God for being here. I'd like to thank Pastor Liverpool for the invitation to speak. And I thank God that we are all here. Uh, all the individuals under the sound of my voice, praise God. The title of my sermon this morning is The Perfect Storm. Shall we pray? Eternal Father, we thank you again for bringing each of us here in your house one more time. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies that are new every morning. Speak to me, speak through me, speak the words that your servants need to hear. And most importantly, thank you for loving us despite ourselves. These blessings I ask in the worthy name of Jesus Christ and for his sake, amen. Is there a better story than the story of Jonah? From beginning to end, the story of Jonah may be comical to some, but I should say maybe the, the character in the story is comical, but the lesson is very serious. We find Jonah to be the opposite of almost everything a good, self-respecting prophet is supposed to stand for. Stories of men like Elijah, Jeremiah, and David, who exhibited great faith, diligently sought to follow God's call. But Jonah though, is a house of a different color. There are three things I would like to point out before I get into the sermon. Number one, it's a true story. Contrary to the critics and skeptics, I believe that this story is recorded as sober historical truth. That is, there really was a man named Jonah who really did flee to Tarshish, who really was swallowed by a whole great fish, who really did survive for three days in the fish's belly, and who actually vomit, was actually vomited on dry ground. It's all true, just the way it is, was written. It's not a myth, or a legend, or a saga, or a parable. Jonah is a true story. We can date the book at about 765 BC during the days of Jeroboam, the second king of Israel. Secondly, it's a short story. Only four chapters, 48 verses, just over 1,300 words, you can read it in 15 minutes, yet it tells us all we need to know. Beautifully balanced, deep and profound, this book opens a window into the heart of God. Third, it's a revealing story. I'm sure most of us have taken a ship to Tarshish at one trip, time or another. We all know what it means to run the other way. And we know how creative the Lord can be when he wants to bring us back to where we ought to be. Jonah was a preacher and a prophet, and God spoke through him. But Jonah is now so known for his all-expenses-paid three-day cruise and a specially prepared fish equipped by God to transfer Jonah to where God commanded him to go in the first place. In chapter 1, Jonah is running from God. In chapter 2, he is praying to God. In chapter 3, he is speaking to God. 
In chapter 4, he complains to God. The story begins this way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. That's Jonah 1, 1 and 2. It's amazing, isn't it, how just one sentence can change your life. You can be driving down the freeway and get one phone call that changes your life forever. If it's good news, your life changes one way. If it's bad news, it changes in another way. Either way, your life can be turned upside down with just one phone call. But that's what happens to Jonah when God spoke three little words, go to Nineveh. Note what Jonah was to do. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. This is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not your best life now. As far as Jonah was concerned, this was bad news from Almighty God. When God said Nineveh was wicked, he wasn't kidding. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the most powerful empire in the world in that day. The Assyrians had a reputation for cruelty that is hard for us to fathom. Nineveh was an evil place where they killed every single prophet God sent to them. Everyone who went to preach died in horrible ways. Their specialty was brutality of a gross and disgusting kind. Things like skinning people alive, decapitation, mutilation, ripping out the tongues, making a pyramid of human heads, piercing the chin with a rope and forcing prisoners to live in kennels like dogs. Ancient records from Assyria boast of this kind of cruelty as a badge of courage and power. For a Jewish man to be told by God to go to preach to Nineveh was repugnant. As far as Jonah was concerned, Nineveh could burn in hell. Go ahead, Lord, push the button, open the trap door, let him fall straight down into the pit. That's how Jonah felt about Nineveh. Nineveh is the place God calls where you don't want to go. But what qualifies is Nineveh today? Nineveh is whatever pulls you out of your comfort zone. Nineveh is the people who have hurt you deeply, and God says, go and give them my message. But what do you do when God says, go to Nineveh, and you hate that person or those people? You need to think about that, because sooner or later, that's what he's going to say. Is there really a difference, though, between God saying to Jonah, go to Nineveh, and God commanding us to go into this wicked world and preach his word? Just as Jonah went to Tarshish, we often go anywhere else besides where God commands us. As we begin our journey with Jonah, let's clarify one point. Jonah is not the hero of this story. God is. The book is about God and how great his heart is toward prodigal sons and daughters who run away from him. Why was Jonah disobeying God? We don't have an answer to that. What was God going to do about Jonah's disobedience? The answer, he sent a storm, a big storm, the perfect storm. Let's look at chapter 1 and let's understand what the storm really was. As we start in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm so that the ship begins to come apart at the seams. This isn't a natural storm. This is a supernatural storm. This is not one that was basically generated by some natural cause. This storm was ordered by God himself. 
The sailors from Tarshish were expert sailors. They were not amateurs. And yet the storm was so bad that they were terrified. The storm was not as big to God as it was to the sailors. Even though the storm was above their head, it was still under Jesus' feet. They were so terrified that they began to throw their cargo overboard. Sailors' wages depended on getting their cargo to the place where they were taking it. If they threw over the cargo, they were throwing away their salary. But this is not all they did. If these Gentiles who don't even know God, who don't even know the true God, are praying, then what would a genuine prophet of the only true and living God be doing? Sleeping. Now, you've got to be pretty tired to sleep in a situation like that. The boat was tossing and turning and splintering, but Jonah's asleep. After they cast lots and determined that Jonah was responsible for, for this catastrophe, Jonah 1.8, they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where did you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? When you're in the middle of a storm, you don't need an explanation. You need God. After the crew finds out the storm is because of Jonah, they ask what can be done about it. What is the logical answer? The logical answer is turn around, head in the other direction, take me to Nineveh where God told me to go in the first place. But this is not what Jonah said. He said, throw me overboard in the, to the sea. It sounds like Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh. He wants to die in blatant rebellion against God. Would it be suicide if he died in the sea? We do not know if he could swim or not, but in a storm like this, it wouldn't matter. Throwing a man into a storm like this is essentially putting that man to death by drowning. So they finally do what Jonah asks. But first, they do something rather surprising. The sailors cry out to their gods. Then later, they actually pray to the one true God in Jonah 1, 14 through 15, and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. But Jonah, instead of praying out to the true God, does not even wake up and is still sleeping. There are are people all around Jonah headed for death and destruction, and Jonah, who is the only one who can help them to safety, is asleep. It must have seemed ironic to Jonah that the sailors demanded that he call on his God. His only reason for being on the ship was to escape his God. Jonah was asleep amid all the confusion and noise. The people around us, neighbors, families, or co-workers, are going through the storms of life, and they wonder, how can we do nothing at a time like this? Are you taking the opportunity to minister to them and to reveal to them the power of God you serve? Or are you sleeping in the hall? The nature of Jonah's sleep is also instructive and too much like the sleep of the careless Christian. Jonah slept in a place where he hoped no one would see him or disturb him. Sleeping Christians like to hide out among the church. Jonah slept in a place where he could not help with the work that needed to be done. Sleeping Christians stay away from the work of the Lord. Jonah slept while there was a prayer meeting upon the deck, 
Sleeping Christians avoid prayer meetings. Jonah slept and had no idea of the problems around him. Sleeping Christians do not know what is really going on. Jonah slept when he was in great danger. Sleeping Christians are in danger but don't even know it. Jonah slept while the heathen needed him. Sleeping Christians snooze on while the world needs God's message and testimony. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish, Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now what really struck me here is the fact that Jonah entered the, the boat or the ship. God didn't say anything. He buys the ticket. I mean, he presents the ticket or buys the ticket. God didn't say anything. He loads his luggage. God didn't say anything. He takes a nap. God didn't say anything. The problem came when the boat began to sail some distance. And I believe that when God tells us to do something, he gives us an opportunity to turn around and do what he tells us to do. The silence of God sometimes can be either good or bad, and we're going to get into this as we go further. It helps to know a little geography at this point. Nineveh was 500 miles north and east of where Jonah was. It was a major city on the banks of the Tigris River. In contemporary terms, that would be in Iraq, about 300 miles north of Baghdad. Archaeologists have found the ruins of ancient Nineveh outside the city of Mosul in Iraq. Tarshish was almost 2,000 miles west in Spain. So we've got a 2,500 gap, mile gap between God's call and Jonah's desire. God said, go east. Jonah says, I'm going west. The text says that Jonah went down to Joppa. That's true on two levels. First, to get to Joppa, Jonah had to go down to the seacoast to the port of Joppa. Second, by going to Joppa, he was going down spiritually. If you look at the action in this chapter, you see that Jonah went down four times. He went down to Joppa in verse 3. He went down into the hold of the ship in verse 4. He went down into the sea in verse 15. And where he went down into the belly of the great fish in verse 17. That's not a coincidence. It's a statement about what happens when we disobey God's call. Anytime you run from God, you never go up. You always go down. In reality, Jonah's problem was never ultimately about Nineveh. Jonah's problem was with God. When we decide to disobey God, there's always a boat going to Tarshish, and there's always room for one more passenger. What are the chances that a man would have the money in his pocket to pay the fare for a ship that happened to be going where he wanted to go? God pays the fare for obedience. We pay the fare for disobedience. Jonah paid the fare to Tarshish, but God paid the bill to transfer Jonah to Nineveh, and it wasn't a comfortable ride for Jonah. When we decide to run from the Lord, Satan is happy to provide the, the uh, transportation. As we stand back and look at this story, a question naturally arises. How far will God let us go into sin? 
I don't think anyone knows the full answer, but it appears that sometimes the answer is that God will let us go pretty far. He doesn't always stop us quickly. Sometimes the judgment of God is simply that God lets us go on and on in our sin so that we have to face the consequences of our own disobedience. As we consider Jonah's story, remember that we can run, but we can't hide. One of the major qualities of our omnipresent God is that he can't, we can't go anywhere that he's not. Psalms 139 verse 8 says, If I send up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. God was with Jonah every step of the way. Though Jonah tried to leave the Lord, the Lord never left him. You see, it's the patience of God that allows us to run. It's the wisdom of God that provides the ship. It's the province of God that sends the storms. It's the kindness of God that sends the great fish. If God didn't care, he would let us go on and on in our sin forever. Every step out of the will of God is a downward step. It's easy to go down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the sea, down into the belly of the great fish. We get away quickly, but we recover slowly. Sometimes when we get, go down and get off the right path, the road back is difficult and often painful. Satan can work through circumstances as well. Satan has his ships, and he always has room on his ships. His ships always go where we want to go when we're running from God. As he gets ready to take a nap, Jonah may have thought, things are going so well for me, this must be God's will. But if he thought that, he was wrong. The Lord had already made his will clear. No set of favorable circumstances can override what God has clearly said. Deep down, Jonah knew God's will. He just didn't want to do it. And deep down, we know God's will, yet sometimes we don't want to do it. Meanwhile, Jonah's disobedience looks pretty good so far. Jonah seems to be living the high life on the ship to Tarshish. Happy sailing, Jonah. Watch out for that big fish. After the whale swallows him up and he hangs around in the whale three days and nights, you would think that he would be jumping up and down and screaming for help. But Jonah makes himself at home in the whale while politely composing a perfectly poetic psalm to God. The whale vomits him up and our happy, unhappy camper, grumbling all the time, takes a sour attitude towards Nineveh. Now, God, now, could God use Jonah at this point? Apparently, he can. And this, again, comes back to the issue of an unlikely hero because the Lord recommissions him. Verse 1 of chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Okay, Jonah, let's try this again. Hit the reset button. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim it to the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Do what I told you to do the first time. Preach the message that I tell you to speak. Jonah may have told God that he would deliver that message, but he hadn't mentioned exactly how he was going to do it. Jonah walked into the heart of Nineveh on the first day and began to preach. And for those who love short, sweet, simple sermons, 
this is it. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. He didn't bother with the catchy introduction. We find no clever sermon titles printed on the billboards, no illustrations, no poems. He gets straight to the matter, no beating around the bush, no points, all lined up. Jonah simply walks into this great city that is important to God and says, basically, in 40 days, everyone in the city is going to be dead. I wish I could have been there to see exactly how he said it. I think he may have been excited about preaching hellfire and damnation. But Nineveh was a great city and he was ready to see it burn. He doesn't even present the truth of his message very well. Clearly, God's message was conditional. If the people of Nineveh didn't repent, then God was going to judge them harshly. Thing is, Jonah never mentions the if part. He doesn't want them to know. He doesn't want them to know there's a way out. We need to be careful how we present God's message to people. This brings the responsibility for all preachers and teachers to be sure that they decide only what God has given them to declare and not to declare their own wisdom or diminish or add to the word God has given. Despite Jonah's intentions, there's an amazing response. Every great, everyone great and small repented in sackcloth and ashes and believed in God. Even the king hears about the message and repents. The Nineveh gave up their evil ways and they put on sackcloth and ashes and prayed to God for mercy. Since the people seem to have really responded, God decides not to destroy them after all. Many classify the revival which Jonah brings to Nineveh as one of the greatest evangelistic efforts of all time. Jonah tells the Lord that this is what he knew would happen. This is why he ran away in the first place. What you see here is a man throwing a first-class pity party. Jonah didn't get his way, and he wants God to know that he's upset. His hurt and anger is so deep that he even attempts to take it out on the Lord. And we better be careful when we decide to line up against God. To put it bluntly, Jonah wanted God to kill him. After Jonah is confronted about his anger, he does not change his mind. Instead, he climbs a hill outside the city, folds his arms, and sits down to wait. He is probably hoping the Lord would change his mind. Jonah doesn't get his way about Nineveh, and he doesn't get his way about dying, so he cops an attitude. There are some people just like Jonah in the church. For some reason, life has not gone as they had planned. Their response is not humble submission to the will of the Lord. No, they just quit on him. It does not say much for your love for him or for your devotion to his will when your disappointments translate into disobedience and desertion on your part. I promise you that if you decide to go to war with God over his will, he's going to will win the battle every time. Just as Jonah was beginning to enjoy the vine, God sent a worm to destroy the vine. Jonah gets even angrier. He is getting a tiny taste of the horrors the hell the Ninevites were headed to before they were saved. But this time, God sets the record straight. He reminds Jonah that Jonah cared more about a vine than he did the souls of the people of Nineveh. People made in the image of God and people who would have perished had he not intervened. 
Every time I read this, I get under conviction. Why? Because I see the same attitude in my life at the t- uh, sometimes. I tend to get upset about things that simply do not matter. Think about the last thing that made you mad. Now ask yourself this question. What will it matter an hour from now? Friends, the only thing that really matters as we pass through this life is finding God's will for us and walking in it with all our power. People are going to hell and we are worried about vines and comforts. Jonah gets an attitude with God. God asks Jonah, you have an attitude? Do you have a right to be mad about the death of a plant? Jonah declares, yes, I have a right. But did he have a right? He did nothing to produce the plant. He did nothing to grow the plant. He did nothing to save the plant. It wasn't Jonah's plant. It was God's plant. So why did God ask this? God asked this to show Jonah just how misplaced his values were. Two observations. Jonah cared more about his personal comfort than for the people of Nineveh. Jonah cared more about the plant vine than for the people of Nineveh. He had a divided heart. On the one hand, he was God's spokesman for morality, but on the other hand, he was full of hatred and contempt. And God knew this. So God used the plant to show Jonah his heart. It seems easier for the creator to manipulate the elements of nature than redirect the human heart to himself. Getting Jonah to the fish was one thing. Protecting him for three days, changing his heart, then getting him back onto Nineveh was another. Jonah did not see Nineveh as God did. In Jonah's story, God's heart is broken when an, an entire group of people are separated from him. In our hearts today, our hearts today must be burdened about the thousand of people that still haven't reached been reached with the gospel. God is not pleased today when his saints feel little or no burden to reach people in need of the gospel. The word says to go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. I want to tell a story here, and I want need you to listen to the story very carefully. God wants us to bear fruit, and he wants us to grow. We are in a vineyard. This owner planted a tree and expected the tree to progress and grow. He expected to find some fruit on the tree. The owner of the tree made a reasonable request. It was his tree, and he expected this fig tree to have done better than in previous years. This man planted a fig tree. In biblical times, fig trees were valuable. They represented a tree of value. It was worth something. And so it is, God has planted us because we are valuable. We are worth something. So it's only right that the owner expects a return on his investment. So this man did not plant any old type of tree. He planted a tree that was valuable. He expected to find fruit. So it is with God. He expects to find some fruit hanging on your tree. Don't think that you're just coming here to be coming. Every one of us has a gift, and God expects us to use our gifts. You have to do more than just come to church on Sabbath morning. 
I didn't expect an amen on that. The owner expected some fruit, so it was a reasonable request. However, every time the owner came to the tree with a reasonable request, the owner kept receiving a redundant report. This tree has no fruit. Why was the report so redundant? It was redundant. It was super, uh, superfluous, I'm probably pronouncing that, or uncalled for God, uncalled for because this tree had some advantages. Location, the tree was planted in a vineyard. Being in a vineyard meant that the tree was protected. The vineyard was closed around about a hedge or a fence to keep the wild animals from ravaging the fruit on the trees. You do know that those of us who have given our life to Christ enjoy the protection of God. Do you remember Job? Satan testified that he couldn't get to Job because God had made a hedge around him and his house and all that he had. God had him protected with a hedge or fence. God protects his people. The tree had the advantage of its location just by the fact that it was planted in God's vineyard. It had a distinct advantage. It should have bore fruit, but not only was it in a good location, but it was planted. Planted. It was not a product of chance or coincidence. A strong wind didn't blow the seed over in the vineyard. The tree had been planted in the vineyard. This suggested that the planter had a purpose in mind for the tree. God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for your life. However, every time the owner came to the tree with a reasonable request, the owner kept receiving a redundant report. The Bible says the owner kept coming, hoping to find some fruit, but he found nothing. Kept coming, hoping to find some fruit of faithfulness, but found nothing. Some fruit of family togetherness, some fruit of fellowship, some fruit of fasting, but found nothing. Some fruit of praying, fruit of love, fruit of compassion, but nothing. For three years he came and there was nothing. He came for 36 months, 156 weeks, 1,095 days, 26,280 hours, 473,040 minutes, 28,383,400 seconds, and found nothing. The owner kept coming to the tree, and he found nothing. What is he finding when he comes to your tree? How many times has he come to you and found nothing? There was a reasonable request a redundant report, then the owner says, cut it down. I've been coming, looking for fruit for the last three years and nothing, cut it down. I planted you, gave you the best spot in the garden and nothing, cut it down. I put a hedge of protection around you, I covered you in nothing, cut it down. I cared for you, I loved you, I let my sun shine for you and still no fruit, cut it down. You're taking up space from another tree that wants to produce and you have nothing, cut it down. I died on an old rugged cross that you might have the right to the tree of life, but you bear no fruit, cut it down. What kind of fruit does your tree bear? 
Is it good fruit or bad fruit? Does your tree bear any fruit? You know, we can preach a better sermon with our lives than with our lips. I sure wish someone had clued Jonah in on this point. So let me get to the storm here in closing. Jonah's storm was not a physical storm, but he was going through a spiritual storm. Just like God orders our steps, he orders our storms. When you decide to follow Jesus, you must always be prepared for a storm. You've been through some storms that you don't even want God to know about. There are some storms that you thought would never stop. You may be dealing with a residue from your last storm. Thank God you're not still in some of the storms that you used to be in. Life is filled with storms. Sooner or later, a storm is going to arise in your life. No one goes through life without experiencing a storm. All storms contain some common elements. They take us by surprise, the secret storm. You don't see it coming, it just shows up. The storms of illness, sudden or prolonged. The storm of death, death of a loved one. A child, a partner, especially not expected to die. The storm of rejection, divorce, separation or abandonment. The storm of unjust criticism. The storm of emotional trauma, hatred, anger, resentment, and bitterness. The storm of accident or some event which may change the course of our life in an instant or time. There are all kinds of storms. If you're broke, that's a storm. If you're sick, that's a storm. If you're dealing with a troubled child, that's a storm. The only kind of storm that I haven't seen is one that hasn't passed over. Sometimes storms would draw all the moisture from your life. But all storms are not bad. Some storms are necessary to blow some folks out of your life. 2020 was a challenging year and full of storms. But a storm for you is not necessarily a storm for me. Some of us experience physical storms, such as a disturbing report from the doctor. When you are going through a storm, have you noticed that much advice is available but very little help? Some saw their homes subjected to foreclosure. Some saw secure jobs lost. Some saw savings that had been accumulated over many years slowly exhausting. Some of us found ourselves robbing Peter to pay Paul. One thing I have discovered is that being a Christian does not exempt you from the storms of life. Some people think that when you get into the church, you are protected. If that were were true, a lot more people would probably be in the church. The storms rise up in the church. You can be in the will of God and all hell breaks loose. When you think you are okay, Satan is going to be there with a storm. God's intentions is better than any storm. Have you ever found yourself in that place? Have you ever found yourself stuck in one of life's storms and no matter what you do, it seems that you cannot make any headway? What storm are you in? What storm has you about to drown? God will send storms that you can't handle because if you could handle every storm, would you pray? The Bible never guarantees a life free from storms, but the storms in our life last only as long as necessary for God to accomplish his purposes. How is your heart? Is it rebellious? 
Are you where Jonah was? God dealt with him as his servant. God will deal with you if you are seeking to operate in your authority rather than his. Jonah was a good guy, but he had a bad attitude. What is your attitude concerning all that God commands or wants you to do? Teenagers, what is your attitude concerning obeying your parents? What is your attitude when you're viciously attacked? What is your attitude when you're confronted with Bible dress standards? How about when the music you like that appeals to your flesh is preached against? What is your reaction? What is your attitude? It doesn't matter what storm you're in. Jesus can stand up and tell your storm to be still. When divinity speaks, something happens. God doesn't make you go against your will, but he knows how to make you willing to go. What has your attention this morning? Jonah didn't care about the eternal destiny of the people of Nineveh. All he cared about was his reputation as a prophet and the foolish prejudices he carried with him through life. He learned, or at least we hope he did, that God's will in this world is all that really matters. Isn't it time we put aside all the things that could cloud our vision or his will? Isn't it time we put our hurts, our desires, and our wills so that we might be better able to do his will in the world? Jonah suffered because he didn't care about the will, God's will. What do you care about today? Nothing should be more important to you than doing the will of God. There isn't any place where the will of God will take you that the grace of God won't protect you.